0: in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon, good sense.
1: Good day and welcome to Tractor Time, brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I am your host, Ryan Slaybaugh, and it feels like a spring day here in my office in Greeley, Colorado, uh, where we are recording episode 27 on the 20th day of March in 2019. Uh, it's been a very interesting week in eco-agriculture, and while I don't want to get too much into the news, it is worth mentioning that we have a bunch of customers, uh, unfortunately, and, and listeners who lost buildings and are flooded right now in the Midwest and even close to our offices here in eastern Colorado and northern Colorado. Um, want to give a shout-out to them and let them know we are here thinking about them. Uh, We were also following the Monsanto trial that ended yesterday. Uh, It didn't end, I guess, but the jury decided that the uh, uh, chemical behemoth is responsible for informing its users about the potential risks of its product, including Roundup and including cancer. And uh, the European Union is deciding to put some more pressure on them as well about climate change. So the pressure's on. I think a lot of us see a vacuum coming where Roundup will be replaced by something and we know the chemical race is on to replace that but we sure hope some farmers can find a way to use nutrient-based farming techniques uh, on at least part of their land and start that transition over. Uh, We know going full organic is a tough 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 uh, challenge but uh, uh, we hope that this is at least a positive that we're getting the information out there. We're helping that farmers can make better choices or at least more informed choices out there about what they're using on their crops and uh, consumers can use uh, this knowledge as well to make better choices at the grocery store. So Uh, Anyway, back to the podcast today. We're going to talk with Jody Helmer, a journalist, gardener, and author of six books, including a new one on the state of pollinators, and we are excited for her update on the uh, pollinators and the Save the Bee campaigns and all that that started a few years ago. So uh, first, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor, BCS America. Uh, Thanks to them for sponsoring. We hope you check out their website and their products. Uh, And then we're going to go right into the episode and our interview with Jody. So stay tuned. Thanks. This Tractor Time podcast is proud to be sponsored by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers and homesteaders. BCS is often mistaken for being just a rototiller, but with its gear-driven transmissions and dozens of professional quality implements, they truly make superior pieces of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy, where small farms are a way of life, BCS two-wheel tractors will exceed the standards of quality and durability you expect of your agriculture equipment. With PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, chippers, shredders, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a high-pressure irrigation pump, BCS America can supply tools you need to get jobs done. Even on large farms where a four-wheeled tractor is a necessity, BCS 2 wheel tractors will tackle jobs that simply can't be done right or safely with the larger machines, from mowing steep slopes and along pond banks to working soil in high tunnels and hoop houses. Check out bcsamerica.com to find their full lineup of tractors and attachments and watch videos of BCS in action. That's bcsamerica.com. Welcome back. Today's episode is all about our connection between how we grow our food and our current state of the environment. Uh, Jody Helmer, a journalist, a gardener, She's an author of six books. Uh, she and Island Press are releasing a new book, Protecting Pollinators, which I just got a copy of after I finished the interview. But we wanted to take this chance to talk bees and butterflies with her, even talk about long-nosed bats. Uh, we haven't had an episode dedicated to pollinators yet, and we needed one because they're so important to our ecosystems, and they're so important to growing healthy food. So we wanted to turn the hour over to Jody. We asked her a bunch of questions. Uh, we hope you enjoyed Jody this Jody Helmer, Welcome to Tractor Time Podcast. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, you are a journalist, gardener, author, uh, but first I want to, before we get into all that, I wanted to, to see uh, where are you calling in from today? Can you kind of describe your surroundings so we can have a picture?
0: Sure. I live in a rural North Carolina about an hour east of Charlotte, and I live in on a little farm, um, more of a homestead really, where we raise chickens and goats and a very naughty donkey (laughs) and um, do a whole lot of gardening on just a few acres.
1: Uh, Love it. Um, We talked to some large-scale cattle farmers on the last episode, so this is going to be a perfect contrast um, to what we were talking about last week, which is uh, getting into a little more of the finer points of uh, growing and especially those ever-important pollinators. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about um, your work and what do you do outside of the, the small farm?
0: Sure. So I am a freelance journalist and author. I've been doing this since about 2002, and my focus is primarily on writing stories about food, farming, and the environment. So I cover everything from how to garden for pollinators and what you should do with your goat milk to um, how um, technology is helping beekeepers avoid theft and how... um, you know, farmers markets are struggling to attract
1: farms. Those mm. sorts of things. That's uh, and that's really how we met uh, Jody was through her work with uh, Civil Heat and uh, through the work with our magazine as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're really excited to to get an uh, an hour with her um, to talk a little bit. Uh, uh, so let's go right back into it. Um, wanted to go into you have a new book coming out in April. You had uh, mm-hmm. I believe this is your fourth book. Is that correct? Coming out.
0: This is my sixth
1: book. Sixth book. I'm sorry. Book. Yes.
0: Yes. That's, right. that's
1: okay. Um, and can you yeah, about number about, six. And it's called Protecting Pollinators. So, can you talk a little bit about uh, what a reader could expect?
0: Sure. It's called Protecting Pollinators How to Save the Creatures That Feed Our World. And it looks at the various threats that pollinators are facing. So, things like habitat loss, pesticide use, invasive species, climate change. And what is being done to help them? So there's been a lot more awareness of the perils that pollinators are facing, and with that has come really a renewed focus on solutions. And so while the threats are major, um, there are also a lot of really good and hopeful things that are happening from a solutions perspective. And so the book looks at both the threats and the solutions, and it's really aimed at a general reader who is interested in what's happening with pollinators um, and what they could potentially do to um, get involved and support pollinator health.
1: Thank you for that and we'll get uh, into how to get that book uh, toward the end of the podcast. Uh, I want to make sure folks know how to get that but just really wanted to set the stage for the fact that Jody knows what she's talking about. She's really researched this, she's gone into the uh, state of pollinators, she's looked at the latest studies. We talked uh, before we started recording that that was one of the challenges is that so many things are changing and so much information is uh, coming to light about pollinators and their role in our food systems that um, there's probably going to be a needed update to this book. So uh, at some point down the line. So could you talk a little bit about some of the research you did going into the book and kind of give us a little state of the union on uh, the bee and butterfly population and and the pollination, uh, pollinators out there, excuse me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, it is a moving target. It's really, um, there are a lot of things happening and things are changing very quickly. And just as one example, um, when I started working on the book and talking about monarch decline, you know, there were a 90 plus percent decline in the monarch butterfly population. And the numbers change a little depending on on who is reporting them. But Mm. There's an agreement that it's sort of in the 90% range. And just yesterday, Texas A&M University released some research that showed that this year, the number of monarch butterflies that migrated to Mexico was up as much as 144%. So we're seeing some big swings as far as the populations go, which is good news. There's swings in the the right direction. from a more general standpoint, there are right now 72 pollinators listed on the endangered species list. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of those are likely pollinators that you have probably never heard of. Um, but some of them, like the lesser long-nosed bat or the little Mariana fruit bat, are um, are ones that are a little bit more common, and their numbers are declining greatly. And so when we talk about pollinators, we're talking about everything from mammals like bats um, to birds and bees and butterflies and moths, um, as well as a couple of other insect pollinators. And so we're seeing some pretty widespread declines in population, and honeybees get most of the headlines, and for good reason, they're very important pollinators, um, but there are a lot of pollinators that are really that are really struggling, and in fact, the rusty patched bumblebee uh, made history in 2017 when it was added to the endangered species list um, because it was the first domestic um, bee to be added to that list interesting so.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, I guess let's talk a little bit about the the threats and what's what's happening with the pollinators. Um, obviously, you mentioned uh, there's some not, you know the the monarch butterfly. Uh, I was out in Monterey, California, a few uh, weeks ago, and they were just getting ready for the big. Uh, um, they were just starting to ramp up. I guess the the big expectation for the migration patterns coming in, but there's a lot of nervousness, and there were mm-hmm. a lot of people going, "I don't know what to expect this year," and so that's really a uh, uh, positive that they saw an increase. Um, Mm-hmm. I, I assume, though, that is—is is that in, did they have a re, did the study explain what that increased, where that came from, uh, and, and what was triggering <laughs> that?
0: So the study just came out yesterday. So right now, I have only had the opportunity to look at the news release and not the actual data. Um, so I am not sure if they're having um, if they have really explained. They did not in the news release.
1: Okay. That um, well, we'll go. I so don't know what's that creating that. that. We'll post that link to the news release and any information on the on the blog or about the, this podcast so people can learn more as that right. progresses. But, that's, mm-hmm. uh, but to get back to the challenges a little bit, are the same challenges that are, say, um, affecting fruit bats, uh, the same challenges that are affecting the, uh, I guess, the A-list pollinators like the bees and butterflies? <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> it's funny that you have an A-list of pollinators. Um, yes. So... Um, to different effects. So the main challenges that pollinators are facing are habitat loss, pesticide use, um, invasive species, and climate change. Mm-hmm. And those are affecting all pollinators to certain degrees. It depends on the specific pollinator and its habitat and whether it's a specialist pollinator. In other words, it relies on one specific plant or flower. Um, or a generalist pollinator that can access nectar um, from various flowers, how dramatically each of these threats is impacting them.
1: That, that, that's so, your, I mean, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, it makes a lot of sense. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh.
0: No, that's okay. Um, so, yes, yeah, some are being affected more strongly by. Um, climate change than habitat loss for example some are being affected more dramatically by habitat loss than invasive
1: species that uh, makes sense and it, it seems like um, because it most like most environmental problems it's complicated there's not a single source and a single solution yeah, okay. um, but right. it, you know it, it seems like a lot of these problems are fairly new you know that these are ones that we invented and we introduced at some point uh, you know through climate change through the toxins uh, do we have any baseline data for what a, uh, I, and I hate to use this word, but normal or what an average bee and butterfly population, and kind of when do we start measuring all this?
0: Uh, that's a really good question, and it's a really hard one to answer. So one of the things that I learned in the process of researching this book is we have the most information um, really about honeybees, mm. and one of the reasons that we have so much good information about honeybees is because they live in boxes, mm. and so they are really easy to study. You can, you know, raise them in a lab. You can put them, um, you know, move them to different habitats, and you can go into that beehive over and over and assess what's happening with your bees, and. Um, That makes them a really great, you know, quote-unquote lab rat for studies on pollination. When it comes to pollinators like native bees, we don't know as much. And part of the reason that we don't know as much is because they move around, um, their populations are hard to count. And in fact, there are probably a lot of native bee species that are out there that haven't even been identified yet and so that makes them much harder to study which means that we don't know as much about their populations or what a sort of gold standard population looks like for some of these um, other pollinators.
1: Right. Makes sense. It's very much similar to, um, you know, we're just kind of learning about uh, or being able to quantify how many Cattle per acre uh, makes a good balanced ecosystems, but it's very much or uh, rele- er, dependent on the the environment that you're in and the, where you live in the world and right. uh, and what yep. how much water and slope you have to your land and all that kind of stuff. So that, that makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense and that would apply to our pollinators yep. as well. Uh, it, it, you know, it seems like um, I've, we've been we're hearing about this for years. Uh, this isn't necessarily a new issue, but it is um, continuing to to challenge us and and uh, you know, as you were doing your research in the book, are you finding pockets groups and groups and maybe grassroots groups or larger groups that are having success um, with some solutions out there?
0: Yeah, so there are a lot of groups that are tackling this, and they range from um, nonprofit organizations like the Audubon Society and the Xerces Society to um for-profit companies. I did um, interview someone who works for General Mills about the efforts that they're making right. to plant pollinator habitat and try to you know, protect pollinators. So there's some really interesting across-the-board efforts directed at this, um, and some of them are having some um, really good success. So, for example, there's a national um, network called the National Pollinator Garden Network. And in 2015, they launched a campaign called the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge. And the goal was, as the campaign suggests, to get a million pollinator gardens planted to help boost habitat. And last month, so this is new News, they announced they exceeded their goal. There were 1,040,000 pollinator gardens registered in the US, Canada, and Mexico. And that created, they're estimating, about 5 million acres of new or enhanced pollinator habitat. Um, and this is happening. These gardens were registered everywhere from the desert southwest and the Smoky Mountains to um, metropolitan areas. In fact, they said that the biggest Um, metropolitan areas that registered gardens were places like Atlanta and Chicago and New York City, which you wouldn't necessarily think of as having acres and acres of available pollinator habitat. But people are really pitching in in those areas to plant these gardens and to start making a difference. And so those are things that are happening that have been Um, and continue to be really successful. And the other thing that I thought was interesting, there's a chapter in the book on citizen science projects. And these are essentially projects that, um, you know, regular people like you and I can get involved with to help deal with some of those pollinator counts, to really get an understanding of what's happening um, in gardens nationwide. So obviously scientists cannot be everywhere. Um, And they are relying on some observations from um, these citizen scientists, and the Audubon Society does a couple of them, um, including they do a great Christmas bird count, and they do um, a hummingbird uh, count as well. And then the um, Great Sunflower Project, which started off just looking at bees landing on specific sunflowers. has pardon the pun, blossomed into one of the biggest citizen science projects in the nation. And those projects, because we have things like smartphones and internet and computers now, have made it easy for people to upload their data where it can be evaluated by scientists. And that's really helping contribute to our understanding of pollinator populations and pollinator health. And that's one of the ways that scientists are getting information about fluctuations in population
1: that's um that's fascinating uh this probably seems like a really s- simple question but i can't figure it out how do you count bees and butterflies what's the method
0: um, so it depends on the citizen science project so you know unlike cattle w- or other livestock that has ear tags and you can say you know number zero one four went up to the feeder ten times today mm-hmm. um you can't do that obviously with birds and right. butterflies and bees and so they're just relying on um, citizen scientists to to either watch their bird feeder and say we had twelve hummingbird visits today, and you can some of the citizen science projects allow um, folks to take photos of the birds or the bees so that they can um, then upload them with their data, and that allows a scientist to say, you know. It's a specific species of hummingbird. It's a specific species of bee. It's not a bee at all. It's a wasp. You know, those kinds of right. things. Um, and others are, you know, with the, the Great Sunflower Project, it's counting the number of um, visits in an hour. So you're looking at a, a plant for an hour and saying, you know, this is how many pollinators alighted on that plant right. in an hour. And it may be the same bees visiting it three times, but you're just
1: counting the visits per hour. That, that makes sense. Thank you. That, that gives some context to kind of how all this uh, science is, yeah, is taking absolutely. place. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You said something earlier that was really interesting um, and in really gets to the heart of why I was excited to have you on the show and this topic on the show is is a lot of the topics when we talk about farming and big agriculture are really unapproachable for a lot of people, gardeners. Uh, you know, They, they really mm-hmm. just don't have the land or the space or the, the capital to even uh, mm-hmm. execute the ideas. But when we talk about you know, planting to support pollinators, uh, it literally is something everybody can do as long as you have a flower pot and a little bit of sunshine, you know, we can create these environments. And so, um, could you talk a little bit about the, the scale of, of these pollinator ecosystems and kind of what's what's a, what's a small idea and then what's a big idea out there?
0: Sure. So, you make a good point. This is really something that, that everybody can get involved in and um, it's, you know, planting habitat is great so if you have a balcony or a fire escape or a windowsill or a thousand acres and you can plant some flowers that will support pollinators that's really helpful i interviewed um the horticulturalists at the Lady Bird johnson wildflower center in austin mm-hmm. texas and i asked them this question you know do these small efforts really make a difference does it really matter what i do in my own backyard and What they said to me was that you need to think of pollinator habitat like a quilt. And it takes a lot of squares to stitch together to make an entire quilt. And so if everyone does a little bit in their own space, those habitats get stitched together. And they give these pollinators a place to kind of move around and some opportunities to move from one place to the other which is especially important if they are migratory pollinators like monarchs who need um, food and nesting sites all the way from, you know, um, the Midwest down to Mexico on their migratory journey. And so you can plant these small, you know, pots, potted plants, mm-hmm. and you can, you know, also plant thousands of acres of wildflowers or, you know, one of the things that large farmers can do or larger landowners can do is take advantage of some of the conservation reserve programs to make sure that um, the land is placed in conservation and isn't developed. So one of the um, stats I came across when researching the book is that um, there was a report put out by the Environmental Working Group that found that 23 million acres of grasslands Shrublands and wetlands were converted to row crops between 2008 and 2011. Wow. And that's obviously all lost right. habitat, nesting sites, et cetera, for pollinators. Um, and so, um, large landowners who can plant, um, you know, pollinator conservation strips and do those kinds of things can really have an impact um, or choose cover crops that provide some kind of you know, nectar resource. But the trick is that you want to plant the right habitat, right? So, um, you know, if a, a large farmer wanted to do a row c- crop with clover, um, that's great because that provides obviously nectar. So when you're thinking in terms of your own garden, um, you want to be thinking about who does this feed? How can a pollinator use this? And then emphasize plants that do provide you know, nectar and pollen, um, or are uh, nesting sites
1: that makes for
0: pollinators.
1: It makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, and when we talk about creating, you know, pollinator habitat, uh, the idea of you know, it doesn't take long to get to the idea of permaculture and how you know pollinators mm-hmm. fit into this permaculture, and especially when you're talking about large-scale agriculture. Uh, regenerative agriculture, which is uh, uh, getting to be a huge buzzword. You mentioned General Mills' program. They're really branding okay. that under the idea of regenerative agriculture, uh, which is really exciting. I know we picked on General Mills a lot through the years, um, but it's just, it's always nice to see um, organizations with that much capital and influence uh, lean over in our direction, you know, and, and try to do things a little cleaner and a little better. And so, um, yeah. anyway, I'm getting off the point, but I really wanted to talk a little bit about you know, making that next step to permaculture too, is if you're, you know, when you're talking about planting pollinators, you're really talking about creating a system, right? And so, Mm -hmm. a system between your food and the pollinators. And so, uh, as you did your research, you know, could you talk a little bit about how does that work and, and, you know, I I wanted to ask about native plants as well and how how important it is for, is, I guess, really native plants important to that system? Um, And could you talk a little bit about, you know, how pollinators fit in the overall system?
0: Sure. So to your question about native plants, they're, they're super important. It's not that, um, you know, pollinators can't get nectar and pollen from uh, something like a petunia. And I'm not picking on petunias, they're pretty. Um, but they may not be getting the right kind of nectar resources. And I think the example that's easiest to understand is it's not that you and I, Cannot get calories from fast food because we sure can. Um, But our bodies perform better when we're eating a healthier, more balanced diet. And pollinators are the same way. And native plants and pollinators have evolved together um, to provide for each other exactly what the other needs. So a native plant has the right you know, balance of nutrients in its nectar and pollen to support pollinators. And pollinators, um, you know, depending on the pollinator, may have um, specific body shapes um, that are perfect for pollinating that particular plant. Mm -hmm. And so um, they really are kind of the perfect match. And we want to emphasize those native plants when we're thinking about habitat. Um, And in particular, because some of the more invasive species that we may unknowingly or unwittingly plant um, can choke out those native plants and make it even harder for pollinators to survive, even if they're providing a little bit of nectar, they may not be providing enough or providing it at the right time. Because that's the other thing about the evolution of native plants and pollinators is that um they either emerge at the same time or provide enough sustenance to last through the entire year um, as opposed to say a garden of invasive or non-native species that may be in riotous color from you know june to august and then there's nothing um, before after that which leaves pollinators struggling to find food So native plants are very important and should definitely be prioritized regardless of the size of the landscape.
1: Makes sense. So before we really just, you know, uh, if somebody's sitting listening going, I know I need to do this, I know I should do this. Uh, just always encourage, you know, think about the big system you're trying to develop. Even okay. if it's in, you know, if, if it's me, it's my little 10-foot by 10-foot garden I got in the corner of my backyard that I someday is going to be 100-foot by 100-foot, but I'll get there. I'll get there at some point, you know, and, <laughs> and we'll we'll keep growing it. Uh, but and, and just to give people, um, if there's any skeptics out there, and I can't imagine there's a whole lot out there, um, uh, when you see the systems working, it really is like a, a night and day picture. You know, when you see a monocrop uh and you're just a monoculture environment. Uh, you have so much less life in it than you do when you have a diverse permaculture environment. And so there's a and where I'm going with this is there's a cool factor to this. Um, you really are developing these really yeah. neat um, environments that you can enjoy um, outside of the food production and outside of the environmental benefits that you're doing. So
0: absolutely. And it's, it's funny you say that because. Um, General Mills for example and you know these big companies who do take a lot of flack for some of their policies also have a whole lot of power to change mm-hmm. the system um, and so when they step up I think they need to be applauded um, and in this case the woman I spoke to General Mills said she had gone to California to um, take a look at some of their pollinator habitat she said she was standing on this, you know two-lane Road um, and the General Mills farm was on one side with this brand new um, pollinator habitat. And she said it was just teeming with life. She said there were you know, birds and bees and butterflies and worms and insects and all sorts of things, flowers. And she said she looked across the road and it was just acres of barren nothingness. And she said she just realized standing there what an impact that they could have. Um, and how impactful it was just to do this small thing. Um, And I think that when you um, start paying attention to habitat, um, in particular, you realize, yes, there are so many birds and bees and butterflies visiting my yard that I wasn't seeing before. And I think even in the absence of a garden, I think once you start to care about pollinators and recognize that, um, you know, all of the black and yellow stripy things are not all bees or all wasps. You know, there are a bunch of different insects um, and, and different types of bees. You really start to get an appreciation for the diversity of our ecosystem and, and how much those really small pollinators have a really big impact.
1: That's, um, I appreciate you saying that. You gave me chills, that, that, that vision of the you know, General Mills a decision makers sitting there seeing the life uh, and seeing the difference, you know, okay. I, I keep thinking about, you know, how can we get um, uh, those, more of those decision makers, whether they're politicians or executives in companies, to see that because, um, you know, the data on paper doesn't have the same romance and the same effect as seeing it in real life, and, and it's really hard to argue that there is an alternative when you see the difference, you know, and that's, uh, that's really a, 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 thank you for sharing that story, uh, that'll stay with me, I appreciate it. Um, let's talk yeah. a little bit about, um, not the, I wanted to go into this because this is kind of the elephant in the room and this is um, the, the, one of the challenges we have is the amount of, um, you know, we, we brought up that pesticides and herbicides have mm-hmm. had a really detrimental impact to pollinators. And I did want to go into this a little bit of just, you know, uh, when we're spraying Roundup, whether it's in our backyard or on our crops, what is that doing to the pollinator population and, and how is that creating a, uh, a negative effect on their environment?
0: Right. Um, you know, um, there are a couple of things happening. So um, if you're spraying Roundup, for example, you're, you're killing all the things, um, you know, unless it's a Roundup-ready crop, um, in which case it's surviving. But other, otherwise, you're killing, you know, um, whatever green growing things are in the environment. And so that could potentially be... Um, eliminating a food source for pollinators. So, for example, if I was to spray, I have a bunch of clover that pops up between our uh, stepping stones outside. Mm-hmm. And if I was to spray that, um, it would kill it for sure, but it would eliminate that clover as a, as a potential food source for pollinators. So that's one issue. The other issue um, with pesticides is that... Um, Pollinators like honeybees forage on the nectar of sprayed plants and then take it back to their hives. And so we're seeing some effects there. And this is definitely a hotly debated issue. Um, and the science, I have to tell you, is a little all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um You know, we're definitely seeing neonicotinoids are obviously the main concern or one of the main concerns when it comes to pollinators. Dicamba is another. Um, And there are, you know, the pesticide companies argue that what we're seeing is uh, results from lab studies that don't accurately reflect what's happening in the field Um, And then some of the field studies that have been done have had really mixed results. Um, And so I I, I don't think that, you know, we should be spraying pesticides willy-nilly. But I also don't think that we are going to convince a lot of um, commercial scale growers to stop using pesticides. And so, some of the research that's being done now is really focused on having pesticides sprayed at different times. So, for example, if you go out, you know, late in the evening and do spraying, you may be less likely to impact, you know, pollinators that for, don't forage often after dark. Um, you know, if you are um, using treated seeds, for example, you are um, actually having less of an impact than if you were to just um, to use conventional seeds and spray. So there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot of work to be done in this area to figure out how we're going to get to a solution that everybody is happy with.
1: I agree. It's, I think. it's
0: definitely the elephant in the room. And, and I think the, you know, I think the other, the other issue that's challenging is because this is such a divisive issue, it's been very hard to get both sides to the table to have a productive um, conversation. And I think that that is hurting us more than it's helping us. And certainly it's hurting pollinators more than it's helping them. Um, it's, it's not like habitat where we can all say, yes, let's plant more native flowers. Um, you know, let's really focus on, you know, building up, you know, these, these habitats where we can,
1: right. uh, which
0: people can get on board with. Yeah, this is a little harder. It's definitely a little harder, and I think it's going to be um, something that gets talked about a lot, certainly, um, as I go out and promote the book and talk about the book, and it's definitely being talked about a lot. Um, with people on both sides of the table as far as solutions go. It,
1: it, it makes a lot of sense. and I, I, you know we're getting at the really the heart of the entire agriculture industry at this point of. Uh, and certainly, we one hundred percent agree that it would be not a very pragmatic approach to assume that everybody would would shift over immediately. and And to your point, uh, when I talked to conventional farmers, I was out at the National Farmers Union annual convention a couple weeks ago and a lot of conventional farmers Mm -hmm. out there uh, nobody I talked to wanted to destroy their own environment nobody I talked to wanted to destroy (laughs) bees and butterflies a lot of it is education a lot to your point a lot of Mm -hmm. it is trying to figure out uh, you know even if they want to do things 10 percent better how do you define that? what is you know and when I define better I just mean uh, less toxins and less cost for their farms that they have to uh, Mm -hmm. uh, purchase Um, you know defining that is really challenging for them and so Finding ways yeah. to create, uh, you know, a lot of them are talking about, okay, uh, what can I do on the corners of my circle pivots, you know, around my crops right. that uh, I'm not using that land in an effective way right now. Yep. I can experiment with it, and what can I do there to prove, prove a concept? So, uh, you know, that's the real positive sign is, is I do sense that there's more people beyond just ecologists and eco-farmers searching for these solutions, but to your point, we do still have to search for that common vocabulary, and how do we talk about mm-hmm. uh, these things, because... Uh, uh, you you mentioned in another interview I, I saw that uh, farmers have uh, can be can be a big solution and a big part of that this if they yeah. want if they want to be and they choose to be and I and I haven't met anyone that would probably say I don't want to be a part of the solution yet so
0: right yeah I agree and we need to take some responsibility as consumers as well I think that you know we are very used to in this country cheap food right um, and cheap food requires commercial-scale production. And as long as we feel like we should be able to buy a hamburger or a box of chicken nuggets or a box of cereal for, you know, a dollar, um, we are contributing to that. You know, the, the farmers are, are doing their best to make a living. Um, and, you know, I think it takes all sorts of farmers to make our food system go round, Uh, But as long as we as consumers are making choices um, and demanding cheap food and, you know, wearing fast fashion and cheap cotton clothing and all those other things, you know, we need to understand that we are part of the reason that we're seeing these big monoculture crops, that we're seeing, you know, uh, widespread pesticide applications to deal with these big monoculture crops. I mean, it's, it's an entire sort of system change that's, that it's going to take. Um, but in the interim, every farmer that sprays at night or every farmer that plants habitat around their um, pivot irrigation is, is really making a, a, di- a difference. And that's something that we need to get behind. It's not, it's not going to happen overnight. So let's, you know, engage in these baby steps that are going to get us to a better
1: place as far as pollinators are concerned. That's uh, it, it, very well put, and thank you for saying that. Uh, and I think about, I was looking through, uh, your, your, your comment really made me think, of, I was looking through our archives the other day, and, and we have all these old photos from, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s from Charles traveling the country, and meeting farmers, and uh, I was looking I found one of an old cornflakes box of a photo that he took, and right <laughs> on the cornflakes box, it says toxic-free. On the cornflakes box, I thought, <laughs> what you know, right. probably from the late 70s, early 80s, but I thought you know, uh, you don't see that very often, <laughs> and, and branded on, uh, uh, and here we were 40, 50 years ago, um, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and companies were really able to use that to sell their cornflakes, and so we've, 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 it's been a pretty new issue, you know, and so that it gives me a little bit of hope and a little bit of challenge because. <laughs> um, you know, we know that uh, uh, it is a new issue, so there's there's a lot of new science and new information and, and things that we're still sifting through. So anyway, I'm rambling, but right. I, I appreciate you saying that, that uh, uh, getting back to healthy, what consumers really expect and they expecting that non-toxic label on their cornflakes makes a lot of sense to me uh, at first. Right. So, um, so uh, getting get back to a little more of the positive things. So, uh, you know, we know that, that, that our commercial agriculture industry is one of the challenges to pollinators. One of the challenges to, uh, you know, healthy environments uh, in communities where we live. Even uh, that is driven by consumers. So, uh, what can, you know, you and I'm really gonna ask for your personal story here because I know you've kind of found this passion through your own gardening. And so, kind of, could you talk about mm-hmm. kind of how you discovered this whole uh, area of that you became fascinated in, and kind of what got you started here?
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I did not grow up on a farm. I grew up near Toronto, Canada, um, in a suburb where all the houses looked the same and all the parents drove station wagons, and did, did not give any thought to where my food came from. But a good friend of mine had family who lived on a dairy farm, and we went out there for the first time when I was 14, and I became fascinated. And it was a conventional small dairy farm, and the farmer showed me around, and he was very gracious in telling me everything about how the process worked, and that weekend there happened to be a calf born on the farm while I was there, and I just became fascinated with this whole idea, you know, they were growing some of their own hay to feed their cattle, they had a big vegetable garden, these were all things that I did not have growing up, and just loved the idea of being out in the country and being with the animals and said to my friend um i want to be a farmer and he said no you don't it's way too much work you don't want to be a farmer and as we were driving around the community where his family lived he said to his mom well that they have a farm too don't they and she said well they just have a hobby farm and he said i said he said oh okay and i said what's that And she said, oh, it's just a farm where they keep animals and grow food, but they don't really sell it or do anything with it. And I thought, oh, that's me. Like, that's exactly what I want to do. And so fast forward um, to, you know, the mid-2000s. I was living in Portland, Oregon, and where the local food movement is strong and the farmer's markets are amazing. And there was a really... um, big emphasis on farm-to-table food, and I just got more and more interested in kind of growing food and eating locally grown food. And then I moved out to North Carolina um, and realized that it wasn't that way nationwide. Um, Our farmer's market here had a lot of resellers, and um, it was a little harder to get local food, in the grocery stores even. Um, And so I started thinking about, well, what can I do I lived in a townhouse at the time, and I started um, growing food just on my back patio. You know, a couple of tomato plants, a couple of pepper plants—really small stuff. Um, but I was in this, you know, developed community where they had lots of grass that was sprayed regularly, and my, you know, large patio was was gravel. I mean, there was nothing nothing growing back there but my few plants. And so there weren't a lot of pollinators. Um, There wasn't a lot of opportunity for me to get my hands in the soil. And um, we moved a few times um, to kind of bigger and bigger spaces. My husband thought it would be fun to keep bees. And so I bought him a beekeeping um, starter kit. I don't know, this was about seven years ago. And I was too scared to go outside. Um, He would bring the frames up to the window where I was behind the screen, and he would show me what was happening in the colony because I was afraid of getting stung. And I just grew more and more fascinated. Um, I realized our garden was um, much more productive with the beehives out there. And um, so about three years ago now, we bought this little farm and decided that we really wanted to go all in on having sort of more control over our environment. And um, so we have some bees, we have chickens, we have a big garden. Um, and it just, it's it all works together. And that's been really interesting for me to see. So with every move and every addition that we've made, um, not only to the vegetable garden, but to our, you know, the gardens around the house where we focus on native plants and, um, you know, pollinator-friendly gardening, the, All of that has really made a difference, um, I think, both to our quality of life, um, which sounds a little, you know, hippy dippy. (laughs) um, But there's something really amazing about feeling like you're surrounded by nature Mm -hmm. um, and having all of these birds and bees and butterflies, you know, in our yard and realizing that if we just let the yard grow a little longer for the clover, you know, that we have all of this amazing reaction um, from pollinators in particular um, than we do if we kind of keep it low in mode. Um, so it's, it's, it's been it's been, this, it's been an evolution, and this is definitely a, a place where I never thought I would kind of... I mean, I hoped I would end up, but never thought it would actually happen, and here I am, and um, I just... I Am really empowered, I think, to keep going because I see the impact that it's having, um, and that's really motivating.
1: That uh, um, I, pre- I appreciate saying that. That that's um, uh, it's always fascinating. I, I think about the uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the old term the IKEA bias, but it really does apply to no. food. Um, It means that when you make something yourself, you're gonna always like it better than when somebody else made it for you. And so there's there's a a sense that IKEA knows as a brand that when they make people put their own furniture together, that that attachment to that piece of furniture is gonna be slightly higher than not. And so, and if you ever see a kid uh, run into a garden that they've been working in, uh, uh, the difference between them picking a tomato off a plant and eating it versus putting a tomato in front of them on a dinner plate is just okay. night and day. And so there is something, um, you said hippy dippy, but I think it's really in our DNA. You know, we really have an attach- right. want to have an attachment to our food and when we don't have it there, we really don't know what we're missing until we get back to that. And uh, there is, right. uh, how to measure that, I don't know, but there's something there, I 100% agree. Uh, We got a few minutes left, and I wanted to get through a couple other questions. Uh, One's you you mentioned in an interview that, uh, uh, and this as as a writer and a publisher, I had to ask you this question. You said that being a writer made you a better beekeeper, Um, and could you walk me through that Mm -hmm. one and how how you connected those two ideas?
0: Sure. Um, It yeah, it's it's ironic, but it did. So, um, writing about beekeeping has allowed me to ask a lot of nosy questions of people who know a whole lot more about beekeeping than I do. Um, and so I have really learned a lot from the sources that I've spoken to. And one of the biggest lessons I learned, um, I'm a little embarrassed to cop to, but I will in case there's anybody out there who, who was in the same position. So I when we got bees, I really got into this idea of natural beekeeping. We're, you know, the bees, the bees know what to do. They have evolved to do this work, and we are giving them a place, and we are providing some habitat, and, um, and we're just going to kind of leave them alone and trust that they can do their own thing. And we kept losing hive after hive. And I talked to this beekeeper who said... Um, heard one of my dogs in the background when we were talking. And she said, you have dogs. And I said, I do. And she said, do you um, give them flea and tick treatment? And I said, well, of course. And she said, okay. So you're trying to protect your dogs from parasites, um, and you're not doing the same for your bees. Hmm. And I thought, oh. It's such a. It was such a simple right. statement, and she said it very matter-of-factly. But she was right on. You know, I wasn't treating them in this with the same regard and respect that I was treating the other animals that we raise. Mm-hmm. And so, those kinds of—and that's an extreme example for sure. But those kinds of interactions have really changed the way. Um, that I keep bees and they've also, you know, I've also talked to people who said, you know, I have have no idea what I was doing when I started and I just jumped in with both feet and made it happen. And, um, that kind of information and advice has been really helpful. The other thing that's been, I think really helpful to me, um, as a journalist who happens to keep bees is that I spend a whole lot of time looking at the research you know, and what's affecting our bees? And what is the average winter loss that beekeepers are facing? And, you know, what can I expect as far as my colony getting through the winter? What, you know, how are people dealing with these different um, issues and how effective are these treatments? Those kinds of things. And so that ability to be naturally curious, which I think you have to be as a journalist, the ability to dig into the data and really understand what's happening and then just the opportunity to talk to all of these amazing leaders in their fields and passionate, experienced beekeepers um, has has absolutely impacted how we manage our hives here, and I'm really grateful for that.
1: That's. Um, I think everybody can learn a little bit from that. Uh, to put your writing hat on a little bit when you're when you're learning something new, what questions do you need to ask, and uh, uh, what's and, and know the why. Why are we doing all this? That's uh, uh, really important. Well. Uh, Jody Helmer. She is the author of a new book coming out in April from Island Press called "Protecting Pollinators: How to Save the Creatures That Feed Our World." Uh, you can find it through Island Press. You can find it through Acres USA. I'm sure you can find it through Amazon. Uh, uh, Shop local. Got to put that plug in. Uh, but uh, before we go, um, actually, are you doing any book tour or any signings out there as well? Behind the book?
0: Yes, I definitely have a couple of things planned um, but, but check back for dates because I'm still
1: yeah we'll let our audience know uh, when you get those scheduled let, our, let us know we'll let people know where they might be able I to or get a book signed um, but before we go I always like to ask every guest um, and you, you're certainly uh, uh, uh very inspirational, and choosing just this, this subject matter of all the ones to to study on, and focus, and communicate what you're learning to the rest of the world. But uh, uh, you answered a little bit about why you were inspired. But uh, why should we all have hope? You know, as you learned in all this research and all this science, what gives you that uh, that 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 energy to keep going?
0: You know, I think that the biggest reason that people are interested in this or should be interested in this is because pollinators are so important to the food that we eat. So the statistic is that, you know, one third of one out of every three bites that we take, um, is a food that we can thank pollinator for. And so I think that that's, that is the reason that people should be interested. Um, and I have hope that, We are just becoming more environmentally aware and curious and passionate about everything that's happening on our planet, and pollinator health has really gotten a spotlight lately, and I think that's really great. There are things happening, and they're working. I mean, when we're seeing news like the monarch butterfly population has increased 144% Um, during this overwintering period. It's just proof that the things that we're doing can make a difference. And the more people that get involved, the bigger the difference that we can make. And I hope that people feel hopeful when they read the book and understand that there are a lot of people, a lot of very smart and passionate people who are engaged in this issue and pushing for change. And the more that we can support them and join them, Um, the more that we can turn this around and, you know, hopefully if you and I were to talk in another 50 years, we would still have all of the good things like chocolate and berries and coffee um, because we still have a robust and growing pollinator population.
1: I I like it. I think if the world knew that chocolate was at stake, they might have a whole different different perception on this. (laughs)
0: Uh, (laughs) I said that in the book. If I had only known in grade (laughs) school... Um, that I should care about pollinators because I love chocolate I would have been engaged in this issue far
1: earlier I think that's what it takes I think you're on to something there well. Um, <laughs> Jody good luck with your, with your hobby farm with your little piece of your quilt um, that we're all uh, connected thank to you. at some point point. and uh, yeah let's have you back on in another 50 years and measure this and see where we are at that point all right? I'll end. be here okay. I hope uh, Jody thank you for joining us today
0: thank you Ryan for having me I appreciate it
1: Thank you for listening today and to all the pollinator protectors out there. I wanted to thank you too. Uh, a couple news and notes before we recap. We just went over our 40,000 download of Tractor Time this week. So we wanted to give a big thank you to our audience. Please keep on spreading the word. You can find our podcast at www.acresusa.com, at ecofarmingdaily.com, or anywhere podcasts can be downloaded. So don't forget to subscribe to our magazine too and have a great week.